Thanks for listening to the Cascade Vineyard Church Podcast. To learn more about our community or the vineyard movement as a whole, feel free to visit our website, cascadevineyard.org. There you'll also find additional teachings, information on our various ministries, and other resources for further developing your faith. Our Sunday live stream starts at 10 a.m. at cascadevineyard.org stream or on Facebook at Cascade Vineyard Church. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Donna. It's, uh, it's my joy and privilege to uh, be here. I have to confess that I am a little nervous and anxious. I retired in 2017, and since then I think I've preached one sermon after 46 years of preaching every week. So I guess it's a good thing because uh, I can't rely on my own skill, my own capacity and ability. Uh, so I'm blessed to be with you. I asked, uh, when Glenn a- asked me to speak, I asked him, well, what have you been talking about? What have you been preaching? And he said, well, we just finished a series out of the book of Ephesians. I said, well, that's great, you know, because that's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's about the church. Uh, it's, I would call it a theology of the church. And so I thought, well, okay, I think what I'll do is I'll just summarize and repeat again what you've said uh, in hopes that maybe uh, sharing my story with regard to church life would be helpful to those who now are pursuing it even more. Having said that, I prepared a presentation. This is the first part. How many of you know that we've been in a pandemic? (laughs) You know, like 18 months of this crazy thing and uh, you hear all kinds of descriptions of what it's like to be in this pandemic. It's distraction. I don't know about you, but there's so much noise coming at you that you're a little bit distracted. Uh, there's disruption. Uh, my kids couldn't come to my house for months. Uh, there's some discontent. You know, like life isn't the way it used to. And I've been married to her 55 years, but 24-7. <laughs> you know, that's a whole new... And then there's a sense of detachment. I don't really feel like I'm in what's going on. And, and then that can lead to depression. And to some who have experienced it, uh, death close by. But I've kind of summarized that whole kind of pandemic effect as a complete experience for everyone and everyone of disconnection. You just don't feel connected with people, whatever. And I, and I thought as I was preparing this, I could describe the, the world and their disconnect. And I asked myself, is that even true in the church bubble? You know what the church bubble is? That's where everything is about what happens at church. And that's been my life. So Ephesians chapter Two, I've entitled Ephesians, Church Life in Ephesus, a PowerPoint and Prologue, and I've kind of subtitled it this, and that's decluttering the pandemic effect of the past 18 months. 
And that's kind of what I want to do with you today. And, and actually, one chapter at a time, taking a verse out of that chapter and kind of uh, not just uh, preaching about it, but also connecting with it so that you know part of my own experience in the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 through uh, of chapter 1 and, or 10, following Paul said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, he made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So here, here it begins by saying, you know, this is incredible idea of God, you know, who created all there is out here, you know, the earth, whatever, and we're caught up in this, oh gosh, yeah, there, there is God. There, and, and, and early on, as Paul was saying, we've come to believe in God. There is a God, there is God. And, and so when I read that, I realized my own personal uh, journey. I was raised by a Christian father and mother. And it was our family legacy to go to church. That was just a given. You did that on Sunday. Whatever was going on. Sunday was all about going to church. The legacy of my Filipino grandfather, who served in the Catholic Church, was as music director. And then my dad, who was an immigrant, who loved singing and leading on stage hymns and choruses. He even, I didn't really realize, realize this later, he migrated here to the U.S., made his way through California, through Yakima, and all the way out to Chicago, and ended up at some time being a janitor at Moody Bible Institute. I thought, oh my. So what I'm trying to say is that I grew up in the church. It was just what happened every week. And I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, I began to think that church attendance was the badge for every young life. I don't want you, but back when we were going to church, you got a pin for, for being regularly attended. A one-year church pin for doing that. And so that's how it begins, with us realizing that there is a God, you believe in a God, you believe in God, and God is working his will through us to bring all things together in a sense of oneness. Creation, humankind, all there is. So now I move to chapter 2, which is a very familiar verse to all of us. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works so that one, no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Now you get that. That's the, the word we use there is we're God's poem. We're God's written, incredible speech and, and work in this world. And... Uh, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God has prepared to us in advance. My dad was a military person. He went to, uh, he became a U.S. citizen during World War II, and he fought in the Philippines. Later, after I was born in the Philippines, we ended up on the island of Guam. My dad was stationed there, where, where my military family was stationed, and we met a missionary couple associated with the Church of God, which is the denomination uh, that uh, we were part of for years. It was during that time that I realized I had not confessed the sinner's prayer, even though I attended military-based chapel regularly. And the missionary couple invited us to come and watch the film. 
I don't, this is really going to date me, but it was a film by the Billy Evangelist Association called Oil Town USA. At the end of seeing that film, my whole family went forward at the altar, kneeled, and prayed the sinner's prayer. And so, I became a fully-fledged member in the church. It was the beginning of an experience at a local church away from, you know, a base chapel, which is you go and, and you, you participate, but you don't really get connected in terms of the life of it. So chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be known. Now, as the wonder of all that God is and does should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his current purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the parenthetic comments, through the church, the fellowship of believers, all observers would grasp the wonder of God's ongoing activity through the church, his image bearers. How many of you know that you're made in the image of God? Right? He, 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 in, in some mysterious way, he kind of created us like himself. Uh, and so I moved to Oklahoma to a new base and became a part of a church. I realized I was a part of a community where God's love was to be taught and practiced. It was very ahead of time for me. I acclimated to the church culture. How many of you know what the church culture is? It's like different from, it's the, you know, as a member of a youth group, I went to Sunday school on Sunday morning I went to youth camps. Uh, in fact, eventually I became a youth leader in Western Oklahoma uh, at the youth camps. And in my senior year at high school, I became the president of the Oklahoma State Youth Convention in Tulsa, Oklahoma. All the Church of God churches sent their youth group, and I, get to, I got to moderate the whole goings-on. Uh, I discovered that I belonged to a church denomination distinct with this calling to the practice of holiness. How many of you know what the holiness movement was in the 1880s and a revival and all of a sudden everybody thought about, well, maybe I should do, maybe I should act like God or practice God in that kind of way. And one of the common flags that we waved at our youth group, I kind of smile when I think about that, was that we'd always say, we don't drink alcohol, we don't smoke or chew tobacco, and we don't date girls that do. We were the separate group of people, more holy than other people, and probably, we were saying to ourselves, more holy than even other Christians of other churches. That's an interesting dynamic in this thing we call the body of Christ. So as a model church youth, I flew that banner. I taught it, tried to practice it. And upon high school graduation, I chose to go to our denominational college in Houston, Texas. At age 17, I boarded a bus in Lawton, Oklahoma, by myself, went all the way down to Houston, Texas, which was an eight-hour bus ride to the town and village I'd never been to go to a college that I thought was going to help me understand. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So I was focused on trying to be this demonstration of the holiness of God. As a vital 
college student, I was more confident to find a girlfriend with the same calling, you know, the same value kind of structure. And by spring semester, we started dating this cute girl from Nitro, West Virginia. And in the spring of that year, while we were dating, I got a call from the dean of the college. And the dean pulled me into his office and said, you know, we got, we got a phone call from Maxine's parents. And they asked us to encourage you to not date her any longer. I was kind of in a state of shock, and they quoted a verse that gave them the right to say what they said, that as believers, we shouldn't be unequally yoked. I'm thinking, I think I know what that thing says. It doesn't quite say what you're asking here. And for me, it was another experience in the church. I was welcomed in the church and to racism 101. Now, because my kids and grandkids are here, you know that we didn't do what they told us to do. We kept dating. <laughs> and uh, I recognize that the learning curve to being a part of the diverse church culture will continue to test my commitment to the real calling that was on my life. I would eventually realize that church, local, regional, national, and global, will be the best curriculum for that learning curve. So I began to think beyond the small little culture that I had been a part of. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I don't include all the verses here, so if you get a chance, you can read that. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for the works of service to the body of Christ may be built up. From him, the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting link grows up and builds itself up in love as each done does its work. I think uh, Donna mentioned that we were missionaries on the island of Guam for three years, took our five kids and went to, to uh, pastor church there in Guam. And that exposure really helped me to begin to realize, it widened my view and understanding of the culture of the church. This small local church was not just the only expression of the church. And seeing the breadth of the church and then focusing on this particular text, I would discover that spiritual ministries, spiritual gifts, and spiritual unity occurs when each does its part and reveals the wonderful, manifold wisdom of God for all creations to experience firsthand. So let me tell you a story. This is, none of this falls in sequence necessarily, but I was, uh, I was asked to invite to go to China and be a speaker at this pastor's conference of about five or 600 pastors. Uh, and so I prepped myself. I had a friend who was going with me and we made all the flight arrangements and I, about a day and a half before I was to take off, I heard that they had problems with my passport that I was waiting for. And that I'd have to go to San Francisco and pick it up the night before the day I was to leave. Well, they pushed that back and my partner went ahead and went. Finally, I came and picked up my 
passport uh, early in the morning, went to the airport and got ready to fly. And the flight was going to be from, from uh, San Francisco to Columbus, Ohio, where the group that I was working with uh, had their home base. And then from there to Frankfurt, Germany, from Frankfurt, Germany to Mumbai, India. And so I finally rested on the plane and I said, okay, okay, I'm going to go. I'm already a day behind. And so I flew from San Francisco to uh, Columbus, Ohio, met my friends in Middletown, Ohio, who then uh, the next day put me on an airplane to fly again to Frankfurt and then to India. In the flight on the way to Frankfurt, we got a notice from the pilot. We've got a problem in the galley, so we're going back and we're going to spend the night in Boston. Okay, I, I mean, they're not going to do anything else. So landed in Boston, put me up in a hotel, spent the night in Boston. Next morning, uh, got to the airport, and a, a different plane, new plane. Okay, here we go. I'm thinking, this is great. Now I'm already two days behind the conference to start, where I am one of the keynote speakers. So we finally get to Mumbai, India, Frankfurt, and then to Mumbai, India. And I go through the airport. I don't know who I'm going to see. I don't know what's going on. And there's an Indian pastor with my name on a piece of paper. He waves at me, and I wave at him, and he takes me to the airport. This is like 9 o'clock at night to a hotel, a small hotel. I have a room by myself in a country I've never been to. I wake up in the morning. My driver comes, picks me up, takes me to the airport. I think, okay, I'm just two and a half days behind this speaking engagement. And I get taken to the airport, board the plane, plane takes off on the runway, and the pilot says, we've got a problem. We're going to go back, and we're going to put you on another plane. So by then, I'm so frustrated and disappointed, I sit down in the terminal, and this is the conversation I had with God. You know, God, I guess I'm not supposed to go there. And so I start thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the airport uh, terminal, and I'm going to rearrange, I'm going to go home. And about the minute I'm about to do that, there's this gal just two seats away from me, and she's speaking in some language. I, I, know, I know Spanish, I know English, I know Tagalog, and, and I, it makes no sense to me. But every now and then, in the middle of her gibberish, she says, thank you, Jesus. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. She's speaking her prayer language. And so I go over there and say, you know, oh, excuse me, but uh, are you from America? And she says, oh, yeah, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And me and my partner are traveling around India because God has called us to intercede for the church in India. And I'm thinking, okay, God, I hear you. Get back on that stupid plane and get where you're supposed to go. We get on the plane, we fly from Mumbai, India, to a place called Salem, uh, tell me all I'm going to do. I, I get to the airport. I, the driver comes, picks me up. I'm thinking, okay. 
Now, this is the third day of the conference. It's past noon. Uh, it's the afternoon session, and I'm getting out of the taxi, and I'm walking into the venue. And as I walk into the venue, in the middle of what's ever going on, they all stand up and give me a standing ovation. I'm thinking, oh, God. And I didn't tell you, but the topic that I was supposed to speak about was spiritual gifts and Let me just kind of, I kind of got ahead of myself, but let me just kind of back. In chapter five, there's this whole sense about the incredible gifts that God gives to us. You know, I just realized I'm 74 and I got ahead of myself. So let me back up, okay? The text says, be careful in how you live and not unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days revealed. Do not be foolish, but understand that God's will is speaking to one another with psalms, sins, and songs, and singing and making music. Here's one of the things I've observed in this pandemic that we've experienced. That we're tempted because we're distressed, discouraged, and discontent to practice shortcuts in our faith, to indulge in little petty sins, to believe in half-truths, to engage in petty disputes, foolish talk, coarse rebukes, and even the use of obscenities to voice our worry, anxiety, and anger because of these challenges. Have you, have you listened to the, the conversations in the churches? Have you listened to the back and forth from whatever spectrum you find yourself in, liberal or conservative, you know, Baptist or charismatic or whatever? Well, we realize that when those things take place, it breaks and fractures our relationship and our loyalties. And then you have to remember that in chapter 5, God said, but submit to one another out of reverence for God. You strong, so self-assured voices, why don't you just shut up for just a minute and let God reinforce the relationships? So now I'm back on track. <laughs> Chapter 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is what? It's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and spiritual authorities in the dark world that we give in. Anyways. So I go to this conference, having endured what well, I The audience has been... They've been told every stop on my journey. And so I enter in, they're applauding this great guy who, in the midst of spiritual warfare, and so after I was staying ovation, and they were paused, they wanted to listen to me, I said, you know what, I just want to tell you, I've only learned two things from what I've endured. And let me summarize uh, what spiritual warfare is. Spiritual warfare is simply going where God tells you to go and doing what God tells you to do. Nothing complicated about that. You know what he's called you to do, what he's set you up to experience. Now here's a real... Oh, 
I made this note, this illustration. A few years ago, I, w- I took a trip to China, talking about how God uses the various parts of the body of Christ and how in the, in the use of that, you realize how reliant you are upon prophets and teachers and pastors and all those guys, and even Sunday school teachers, ch- children's ministry people. You know, all of a sudden you realize you're in this credible culture. You're almost as dependent on each other as you don't think. So I took a group of seven people with me to China. We were to go there to dedicate church buildings, to dedicate uh, uh, medical clinics, to go into schools, do medical things. And previous to this trip, about a week before this trip, I had to have, uh, wouldn't emerge, I had to have prostate surgery. Something was going on. But I recovered. I was great. You know, it felt okay. Boarded the plane to go to India. And uh, all things are good. Uh, you, you don't know that sometimes you realize you're... Uh, I'm a compulsive, compulsive aggressor. You know what that? I mean, you know, if a little, if a little medicine's good, a lot's better. A little. So we get in, the, in Hong Kong, and I just want to show my friends Hong Kong. They just follow me, and sure enough, I go on a ten-mile hike. Hey, I'm a leader. I lead. You follow. I lead. <laughs> Well, later that evening, that morning, Sunday, I think it was Sunday morning, we actually dedicated a new church building. And at that church building, I realized something's going on. I'm blocked up. So medically speaking, a blood clot has come into my prostate, and I can't relieve myself. So good. Uh, the uh, Chinese officials who are with us take me to, uh, to a hospital, and they catheterize me. All things are good now. I'm feeling really great. All right? Until 2.30 in the night, that night, guess what? I'm plugged up again. So I board into a car with a translator, friend, and he takes me to a hospital. I go to the emergency room, and I'm laying on the gurney or the surgery table, a nurse comes in with this huge syringe. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, God. Now, she's really going to help me. I, I don't know this whole thing. So I'm lying there, and my pastor, translator friend is next to me. And I'm thinking all kinds of fearful things. And all of a sudden, his name is Glendon. He leans over, holds my hand, and sings a song. Heavenly Father, I appreciate you. You know that song? That's kind of nice. And he sings it. Oh, and I'm thinking, I, I think this in my mind without saying, Clendon, don't you know a newer worship song than that? I need something more. And then he gets down to the last phrase. Holy Ghost, what a comfort you are. Holy Ghost, what a comfort you are. You live in me. And this is what God said. He said, Steve, you think that's Glenn singing, or Glendon singing over you. That's me 
singing over you. When you begin to realize, no matter what category of spiritual gifts you have, that you are dependent on every component part, high, low, or indifferent, obvious or inobvious, you know, then you need to realize the manifold wisdom of God and just how incredible the church is. You know, I experienced with my in-laws a poor demonstration of the church called racism. And halfway around the world, I experienced the other incredible demonstration of God and his gifts to his people. Okay, now I'm... Well, let me read. I think this is really interesting. I worked on this really hard, believe me. I'm, I'm really not used to it. Maxine will tell you, uh, for 46 years, I preached without notes. At 74, I don't trust myself anymore. <laughs> and so I had to write these notes down, and actually I kind of got ahead of myself. Let me read for you in chapter, uh, I think it's, oh, here, it's six. Where he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God because you battle against what? Principalities and powers. On a subsequent trip to China, I have seen you to see how remarkable God demonstrates his presence through the church, local, national, global. If you're willing to look and see and hear, God will speak, God will show himself. And so I'm going to go to my conclusion because I actually lost the page but it's about spiritual warfare. It's about recognizing that and that when all things come against you because God is the one in control, he will find a way to provide you what you need and who you need and through the church how many of you ever met a church person that you really didn't appreciate? You know, they're not, you know, or a leader who wasn't really as eloquent or as gifted. And you kind of felt like, oh, I'm going to go find a, you know, find this or that. How many of you know that the church culture can sometimes be the worst thing? So I have to, you know, after a while, I've watched people who retired and they would say to me, I'm just glad I don't have to do this every week. Oh, here comes an event, the next event, the next meeting. What? It's like, oh, gosh. The church culture can be that way. It can so manage and control you that you can become even disconnected from the reality that you need to celebrate. Uh, this is the last page. I think it's here. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the church in Ephesus 
because we're left with this high regard for it. But 20 years later, after Paul wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, John, in the book of Revelations, mentioned Ephesus again. And this is what he said. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard works, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you tested those who claimed to be apostles but were not and found them false. You persevered and have endured hardships for my sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That's not the best epilogue to the church in Ephesus. It's an epilogue that can be written over a number of churches that rise and fail, fall. And then you become aware of the reality that the church is also prone to failure and brokenness because it's filled with real human beings. It's not perfect, but in its failure, in its failed moments, it remembers something that sometimes they forget. And that's what John said to the church in Ephesus through the the book in Revelation, you have forsaken your first love. What's John talking about? What is this first love? That we sometimes ignore, neglect, diminish, forget, and even forsake. Perhaps it's not in the book of Revelations. The answer is, the answer is in the letter that John wrote. Where John said, we know and rely on the love of God, the love God has for us, because we love, why? Because he first loved us. So I'm going to tell you a personal story, and uh, I hope I can say it with a level of gratitude and uh, appreciation for the love of God poured out in those moments in my life, even now. In 1982, we came from Guam and took on a church in Red Bluff, California. Uh, five kids in grade school and in about ready to go to high school, freshman. The church was a church that uh, had gone through some challenges and their attendance had dropped to about 150 or there, 160, something like that. We served for eight years there. And God did remarkable things. Provided a remarkable youth group, a remarkable ministry of music, a remarkable uh, uh, testimony. Uh, we even, at that, an average attendance of over 400, almost 450. We even hired a senior pastor just for seniors. So we thought, well, yeah. Oh, God, we're, yeah. And, I, and we began to think, you know, it's because of all we've done. This had to be uh, 
probably 1989 or 1990. And I committed a moral failure. I got involved. And I was confronted by it. They called the district office, assembled a meeting with the elders of the church, the governing body of the Church of God in Northern California, and they met with Maxine and I and confessed to my failure. And they said, well, you're going to have to surrender your credentials the ordination papers. And you have to resign. And even more, we're going to suggest that you take your family for the sake of the church and move 45 miles away. There's a sister congregation there and you can go there. After that meeting, I had to go back to my kids and I had to tell them with all the guilt and shame that I was feeling what had happened and what the decision was. And after I told my kids that, the youngest kid, his name is Stacy. He was 14. Now you got to know that part of my relationship with Stacy is pretty special because he was conceived after a vasectomy. Oh, you're done. And so I spent a lot of time with him growing up, just he and I. But after that moment, he came up to me and he said, Dad, I'm really disappointed in you. But I still love you. At that very moment, I realized that was not Stacy talking to me. That was God saying, Son, you disappointed me. But I have never or will never stop loving you. In the context of a church culture, God can sometimes say things to you that help you realize again, what is the first love of your life? That the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God is poured out towards you and you personally. And you know that he will search for you through all the fights, even abandon the 99 to tell you how much he loves you. You know, I think again of that moment and other moments when I felt and was disconnected and realize that when I go back to the first love, 
the primary love, the first experience of this transcendent loving God into my life, I realize that he hasn't given up, that he continues to want to be a part of who I am and what I do. And I've discovered that in churches that were not so healthy and churches that are really healthy. And I've recognized that that's what we're called to do. Why do you go to church? Oh, we're going to church today. Well, we go to celebrate our friendships, to sing songs, to listen to teaching. And after a while, I don't know about you, I did it for 46 years, it kind of gets a little boring. Little normal, you know, and going through the motions is easy to do until something tragic happens. And you really realize it's all about God's love for you. And it isn't just about the creator of the universe, the God who's manifold wisdom of God and his incredible love for you is poured out to you and in you. It's meant to go through you. It's not about just going to church on Sunday. It's about being the church on Monday through Sunday. It's about you knowing that the love of God has poured into your life in a remarkable, overwhelming way so that you can find the person this week who God is calling you to express his love. We are just the conduit of God through to others. And so I was thinking about doing some ministry time, and I, and I think we'll do a little song after. You can do it then. But this is what I want you to consider before I show you this last slide. It's, it's important for you in your life in the church to know that God's plans and purposes have been, are now, and will always be for you to be the vessel through whom the love of God is poured out locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. You should have your hands on every expression of that. And so uh, I'll show you this one last picture. It's over here to the right. Let's read actually February 2005. How many of you remember that great tsunami in the Indian Ocean? I'd been to India a few months earlier. And after the tsunami hit, my friends and me asked if I'd come back and help lead a delegation who would go to various places in India to bring fishing boats for the fishermen, to bring concrete blocks to uh, rebuild churches, uh, and to just encourage the body of Christ. One of the trips in that trip included going to Chennai, India. It used to be called Madras, India. And I had the opportunity 
to meet these kids. All 30 of them who felt the impact of the tsunami. They lived on a small island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And when the tsunami hit, a hundred foot wave hit. Two thirds of the island was submerged. And most of the residents who tried to escape by running to the highest hill, thousands were killed and died. So this was a month later, and I'm in India, and I have the opportunity of being able to bring one of the gifts we brought to these kids was a suitcase. They had nothing. We brought suitcase and clothes for them in this orphanage that would provide food. And so you have a picture of me in the middle of my being able to be an expression of God's love to over 30 orphans whose parents had died in the tsunami. So after I shared with them, I said to them, I'd be so privileged if I could have a picture of me with you. And they all gathered in this photo. I came back and thought, I should tell people when they see this picture, where's Elmo? Where's the person that God would demonstrate his love through? So I'll leave you with this. I'm going to pause for just a minute and pray. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I know God can speak. God speaks in a variety of ways. Thoughts, emotions. Uh, When I first really tried to listen to God, my hands would get heavy. It's like, you know, oh gosh, I'm not, you know, and stuff. I remember remember the first time I was preaching. uh, We had started the vineyard in Red Bluff, and I was preaching, and we had a ministry time. And my, the same son I talked about, Stacy, he was 14. In the middle of the ministry time, he came running up to me and he said, Dad, my hands are on fire. I said, he said, what do I do? And I said, go touch somebody. Because I think you might be getting the gift of healing. Stacy is an emergency nurse emergency room nurse, still practicing the presence of God in his life, even through this pandemic. So I'll leave you with this. I'll pray you just to prepare, and the worship team will do a little uh, worship thing, and then they'll dismiss. But here's what I want to leave you with. I don't care who you are. I don't care how young or old you are in the Christian church culture. You're part of God's incredible handiwork. Every child that's ever been born has had the imprint of God in their life. And all through your life, God will knock. He'll speak into that. My prayer is that in this next few moments, and however he speaks to you, he will say, I have a plan for you this week. There's someone I want you to express the love of God too. Could be a family member. Could be a former church person. 
could be a coworker, could be a fellow student, could even be an absolute stranger. But I want you to ask God right now to pour his love into you in a new, fresh, and vital way. So you will not waste this week. You'll make the most of it by being available for the love of God, not just to come to you and make you feel good, but to go through you so others can experience his God. So close your eyes with me. I'll close this. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Casket Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org give. We'll see you next week.